Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, January 27th, 2011. What's staying and what's going? I gotta make decisions here. It's program time. Ay, ay, ay. Oh, the pressure. <laughs> I hope I don't cave under it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We like to uh, take what people are saying and compare it to what God's Word clearly states and uh, and work out from there. I mean, it's, uh, it's um, depressing, it's funny, it's sad, all kind of at the... Uh, <clears throat> Same time. So, um, and what we try to do here, have a little bit of fun along the way. Sometimes we laugh, sometimes we cry, sometimes we, you know, I kind of try to mix it up a little bit. And so let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Uh, Controversy has erupted. Controversy, that's right. Uh, If you uh, follow the Pyromaniacs blog, uh, Frank Turk of the uh, Pyromaniacs blog has uh, written an open letter to Michael Horton and uh, basically taken Michael Horton to the to the shed, if you would, uh, and (laughs) and uh, has raised an issue which, funny enough, perennially, this issue uh, comes up regularly. It it is a I'm you know, I'm actually kind of glad that Frank Turk wrote the open letter that he did. Because uh, he brings up some very important points, uh, stuff that is worth uh, weighing in on. Not that he you – know, Frank Turk really didn't bring me up, but uh, being as I'm a disciple of Dr. Rod Rosenblatt and uh, you know the, the issues that are brought up are brought up with you know to me on a semi-regular basis, at least privately. And so what I'm going to do today on today's edition, we're going to start off – uh, by taking a look at uh, Frank Turk's open letter to Michael Horton, and uh, and then we're going to look at the response uh, that's already been posted uh, over at the Heidel blog. The Heidel blog. Uh, that's uh, R. Scott uh, Clark. He is uh, 
weighed in regarding the controversy and uh, and and already has even updated his uh, his blog but you know again this is one of the this is an issue that is worth weighing in on wait taking a look at and uh, and and talking about now somebody did mention me a few people talked about me in the comment section over at the uh, pyromaniacs blog um but uh, you, you know, and it was interesting to kind of look at those comments as they came in. And uh, so, it is, we're, we're going to start off with law and gospel, if you would, as it pertains to the Christian. And uh, and so, what's funny is is that uh, you know is that uh, the the guys over at Pyromaniacs are uh, you know are, are reformed. They're Calvinistic guys, and the Heidel blog gives an answer from a from a reformed. Heidelberg Catechism confessional kind of uh, response worth looking at, but you know, and of course, you know, we Lutherans, you know, were caught up in this too because, uh, you know, it's we kind of kicked off this whole law gospel distinction at least during the the Reformation, and uh, so we're going to take a look at that, and then uh, you know, time willing, if we're gonna we're gonna. Uh, we're going to listen to Bill Johnson. Uh, we got another Bill Johnson uh, segment, and we're going to listen to him answer a question be, uh, about hiddenness and self-promotion. And uh, um, I've watched this YouTube video four times, and I still have no idea what Bill Johnson is talking about. And so uh, we'll be uh, playing that for you uh, today. And then on for our sermon review, we ha- we have another good sermon. Now, it's not a Pastor Gervais Nicholas Edward Charmley sermon. Uh, It's a sermon by Pastor John Feeney of Advent Evangelical Lutheran Church over in uh, in Zionsville in Indiana. And uh, he he did a sermon on what is the purpose of church? What what, what do we go to church for? Why? why? And so uh, it's actually very well done and worth passing along. So I'm going to pass that along today. And uh, so, you know, it's, I know it's kind of like a three days in a row. We, you know, we had Pastor Charmley on Tuesday. We had Dr. Rosenblatt yesterday. And we have uh, John Feeney from uh, Evangel- Evan- Advent Evangelical Lutheran Church today. And so I think we'll get to a bad sermon tomorrow. I had to take a little bit of a break from the, the bad sermons. Uh, mentally, they, they, uh, they, they, I get to the point from times it's like, my filter gets clogged, and so I got to take the filter out and hose it down, and you know, and kind of let the stench, you know, yeah, you, you understand. Yeah, that's kind of <laughs> the metaphor. So, uh, you know, anyway, so with that, we're going to dive into the program proper. Feel free to relax, uh, kick up your feet. If you want to enjoy an adult beverage, we don't have a problem with that. Keep in mind, biblically. Uh, the prohibition is against drunkenness. You don't want to abuse the gift that God has given you. No problem if you want to enjoy adult beverage. Fuzzy bunny slippers do help enhance your listener experience. I don't know if you knew that. Uh, you know, I haven't talked about the fuzzy bunny slippers in a little while, but it's true. Um, I, I've actually tested this. I, I now have a pair of fuzzy bunny slippers uh, given to me by a listener, and uh, and I've actually sat down and reviewed a uh, one or two episodes of Fighting for the Faith, you know, because from time to time I, I want to see what 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 can I improve on, what what you know, what am I doing right and need to do more of, uh, what am I doing wrong and need to you know to get rid of. So from time to time I actually review some of my programs, and uh, I decided to actually experiment and see if the if the listener experience was truly enhanced by you know a, a noticeable factor while wearing fuzzy bunny slippers. 
And it, it is true. It, it really does improve your listener's experience, especially since, you know, we still have snow on the ground here in Indianapolis. And uh, so, you know, the cold weather makes that, you know, perfect, you know, it makes the fuzzy bunny slippers perfectly appropriate. Again, you don't want to wear them. Uh, you know, I, I got a, a Facebook comment from a listener down in Perth in Australia. By the way, happy belated uh, Australia Day to you folks down there, down under, who are listeners there. I, uh, I By the time I saw that you guys were celebrating Australia Day, I realized because you're already on, like, you're on the other side of the international dateline, if I had said anything, it was already too late. So I have to send you all down in Australia belated uh, happy Australia Day. So, but anyway, I got a I got a comment from a listener in Perth, and he was saying that it's like a hundred and something degrees down there. You know, they're you know they're in the throes of summer. We're in the throes of winter. You know, that's the thing with the northern and southern hemispheres. Things kind of get, you know, opposites. You know, and they attract apparently. Yeah, that doesn't work, does it? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> oh man. So uh, let's uh, let's dive into the program uh, program proper. And you know, since uh, Frank Turk is a friend, I you know I, I think it's important that I give him the appropriate dun, 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 dun. from the uh, Pyromaniacs blog, teampyro.blogspot.com. Headline reads: Open letter to Michael Horton, written by Frank Turk. Frank Turk is one of the guys who writes for the uh, for Team Pyro there, and I've had several conversations with Frank, and just I love the guy. He's a great guy, and so he he's he's written a uh, an open letter to Michael Horton. Now I I'm not I'm not Michael Horton. I'm I, I'm not, and I'm hoping that Michael Horton takes some time to. Uh, Address Frank, uh, you know, because the uh, the topics of Frank, the the issues that Frank brings up are important. Anyway, uh, Frank writes, he says, Dear Dr. Horton, first of all, I am certain that those opening words have already sent some people into apoplexy because, let's face it, my open letters have been written to a a rogues gallery of self-identified Christians who are doing serious harm to the name of Christ and the definition of the gospel. And those people need to repent so far. Um, Thus, some people are already grinding their axes and calling out their kin with torches and pitchforks because to write to you in that context is a grievous error. Oh, Frank, you're hilarious. Okay, my hope, my hope is that I can air what I see as a re- as as reasonable questions and critiques for you and your cohorts at the White Horse Inn. My thought is that in the name of doing something necessary and right, I think you have over time created something you do not intend. Okay. So to that end, let me uh, thank you for decades of brilliant dialogue and broadcast content regarding true orthodoxy and the centrality of the gospel as the defining matter of the Christian faith. There are a lot of allegedly apologetic radio shows and podcasts, but none of them, frankly, affect as many people as deeply and drastically as the conversation, which is known as the White Horse Inn, has affected uh, conscientious conservative people since its first broadcast uh, in 1990. White Horse Sin has been uh, talking seriously and soberly about the faith longer than I have been a Christian. So when I come to it, I come with respect and admiration. I'm glad he's doing the proper amount of bowing and obeisance and all that kind of stuff here. Kidding, Frank. He says, I've been composing this letter in my head for probably two years now, so I can think of about a dozen ways to enter into what I'd like to bring to you today. I'll, I'll choose a way which seems best 
uh, with your own words. Uh, the following is a transcript of a podcast from um, the 1st of January, 2011. Uh, starting at the 25-minute, 35-second mark, Michael Horton says, quote, The gospel can't be lived. It's the law that's lived. We obey the commands that we find in Scripture. We uh, do not, the gospel, uh, uh, we do not, the gospel is not anything for us to do. The gospel is an announcement for us to take to the world, and on the basis of that gospel, we do live differently in the world, but that isn't itself the content of the gospel. It is the effect of the gospel. Kim Riddlebarger then chimed in says, I think you made a brilliant point. I know that there will be a number of people who will hear us who are familiar with us and they'll say to themselves, well, there they go. They've been on the air two minutes talking about the Great Commission and they're back to law and gospel again. But your point is absolutely spot on. We believe the gospel. We obey the law. If you are not clear about that, then you're going to go off on a mission and as you risk, as Jesus warned, making people more fit for hell than they were before. If you're telling people that the gospel is doing certain things, acting certain ways, behaving in a certain way, then you are just accelerating their demise and decline. Ken Jones chimed in and said, One of the dangers associated with that is if you talk about, quote, living the gospel, I think most evangelicals would acknowledge their own shortcomings in various areas, so therefore their failure becomes a failure of the gospel. It becomes the gospel's failure. What they mean is we live in light of the gospel. We live because of the gospel. Mike Horton, rooted and grounded. Ken Riddlebarger, but they have to start saying that. Uh, Ken Jones, yes, they do, they do, and the confusion is that is, and the confusion is that so that even when my life doesn't match up, which it seldom does, this is the ongoing process of sanctification. That's not that's no reflection on the gospel. Horton then said, in fact, the gospel is so great that it is the announcement of the perfect work of Christ, which isn't diminished by my fails. It is exactly what I need in my failures, even my failures to live out the implications in response to the gospel. It even covers my failures to do that. It is, and as long and as long as you have a gospel that is perfect and complete because it's about someone else, you can always get back up again after you fall and embrace that gospel. It puts wind in your sails so that you can take it to the ends of the world, even though you are a miserable sinner yourself. Here's another excerpt from a previous podcast. The 18th of December, 2010. Starts at about 20 uh, minutes, 25 seconds. All I can say is, Lord, have mercy upon that person who looks to me to be the gospel. Rod Rosenblatt. Right. Mike Horton. You know, I have to say, uh, I have to say, no matter how to answer, if you're asked the sort of textbook doctrine question, do you believe you are saved by works or by grace? Of course, saved by grace. Once you get out of the realm and you have phrases like the gospel, live, be the gospel, live the gospel, you have to realize that the very phrase be the gospel or live the gospel is equivalent to we are saved by works. And last of all, uh, <clears throat> Frank Turk quotes from uh, that same podcast starting at about the 22-minute mark. Michael Horton said, 
Think about the criteria Paul lays out in the pastorals for uh, ministers. I've never seen relational in there. And now, of course, this is going to sound like typical Reformed and Lutheran, Rosenblatt says. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just, uh, Rod Rosenblatt, you don't get it, Mike Horton, because you guys really are the least relational group we've ever seen on the planet. Now we have problems in that area, and there are passages in Scripture that talk about hospitality generosity and all sorts of things that we think we need to work on in our traditions. But if you don't have hospitality, you don't have generosity, and you don't have rela- uh, re- uh, rela- uh, relationally, whatever that means, you don't have kindness, gentleness, humility, all of these qualities that are so important for our interpersonal relationships. You're not healthy, and you don't have a healthy church, and if you don't have the preaching of the gospel, you don't have a church. Okay, so those were the quotes that uh, Frank Turk brought up from the um, White Horse Inn podcast. He then continues, Turk says, Among all the things you say clearly and continuously, these few statements seem to lay out some of the things which I think are meant for good and are meant from a right motive. But say something instead which doesn't turn out as well as one would hope. I wonder if you have put these clear moments together in your analysis for the White Horse Inn's impact on the evangelistic, apologetic, ecclesiastical environment and you uh, yeah, you have helped create in the last 20 years. Now, why bring it up? I actually have three reasons, Turk writes. He says, the first is a general complaint. I think you fellows have taken the right-minded theological distinction, law and gospel, too far. Really? Okay. You have made all of human life and God's interactions with man into either an imperative or an indicative missing the point that some things in life, especially in the Christian life and in the Christian theological anthropology, fall under the subjunctive mood. For example, Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, subjunctive, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, who is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I realize that the hortatory subjective is in a way a, in a way to command one's self, as they say, but let's recognize something here. That kind of command is not external or decreed, but in fact internal and voluntary. Now, Frank, you bring up a good point, okay? And I want to come back to this, this, this idea that uh, let us lay aside here and that this is in the, um, yeah, the, the uh, subjunctive mood here and that this is something that, you know, from the text itself implies that it's internal and voluntary. In fact, maybe I should just address this quickly. Keep this in mind. Christians don't do good works because if yeah, because they're it's compulsory. Okay, and what I mean by that is if you don't do that, you're going to get whacked on the head. You're going, you know, the, the, the idea here is that Christians do good works because we've been regenerated. We are new creations in Christ. And from the Lutheran perspective, you know, our the, the Lutheran uh, confessions constantly keep making it clear that good works are necessary. 
And and what they mean by that is is that it is a necessary part of this new creation in Christ. And the idea is is that we we look at the doctrine of original sin that we are dead in trespasses and sins and that we are hostile to God and rebellious against God. Um that uh that you know we cannot choose God he chooses us and that we are truly reborn we are truly uh we are regenerated through the working of the holy spirit through uh the through the word okay and so you know faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of christ and we are a new creation in christ and that new man does good works that new man can't help but do good works because that's what that new man that Christ has created in us does by nature. Now, we still wrestle this side of the resurrection and the and the coming of Christ. We still wrestle with the fact that we have a sinful flesh that we must continually deal with on a day-by-day basis. And as we Lutherans like to say, uh, you know, it, on a daily basis, we are to drown our uh, our sinful flesh, our old Adam, in the waters of our baptisms. Problem is, is that uh, the uh, <clears throat> the sinful flesh, the old Adam, is a good swimmer, and he can hold his breath for a long time. So even when the bubbles stop, you know, you haven't really gotten rid of them. Um, so the so you're right there in pointing out that Hebrews twelve one in you know in, in the Greek there, it's recognizing that the command is not an external decree, but in fact an internal involuntary that this should be coming from within you. Absolutely correct, and that is that. What that implies is is that we are a new creation in Christ. We don't do good works because we're thankful. No, we do good works because we're a new creation in Christ. At least that's how the Lutherans would look at this. Anyway, continuing. So uh, he says that kind of command is not external or decreed, but is in fact internal and voluntary, speaking to a willingness and not merely to submission to some external force or authority. Here, the writer of Hebrews, someone we must agree is not a Pelagian or a syncretist or a closet Roman Catholic or any kind of uh, any sort of denier of the gospel really says somehow we can relate to the life of faith and relate to Christ himself and want to do what the faithful have always done. Yep, you're right. You're absolutely correct there, Frank. And uh, that doesn't conflict really with the distinction between law and gospel. But yeah, anyway, you, you we'll continue. He says, there is much to be gained from the law, gospel, imperative, indicative distinction in Scripture, but not everything is resolved by it, and one of the things which is not resolved by it is what manner of people the gospel makes us, what is actually part and parcel of the good news. Now, this is where I think, Frank, you're confusing, um, uh, you're confusing something. When you say the phrase, part and parcel of the good news, I, I think that Theologically and biblically, you, you're you're muddying the water there. Okay, good news, gospel, euangelion. Gospel is something that is proclaimed. It is something that is announced. It is something that is placarded. Okay, our sanctification is a fruit of the working of the Holy Spirit through the preaching and proclamation of the gospel. So um, I I don't see that sanctification is part and parcel of the gospel. What I see in Scripture is that sanctification is the logical uh, and, well, it's the logical result, the logical fruit of the gospel, but it's not the gospel. And so I, I, I think the White Horse Inn guys, even in the uh, quotes that you've quoted here from their, from their uh, program, 
that's what they're going after. So and and so let's uh, you know when you say that you know the manner of life that we be uh, that we live or the people that we become that's the fruit of the gospel but it isn't the gospel. This brings me to my second concern. While you are right that Christ died objectively, the declaration that Christ died for us is actually the gospel. In that uh, consider Hebrews 10 that after the writer extols the finished work of Christ, he says, quote, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water." For this writer, the gospel results in something more than just a declaration of righteousness. And the funny thing here is, uh, Frank, I don't. The points that you're making actually don't undermine uh, the points that you uh, quoted in the White Horse Inn. I think actually you're making the points that they made. Okay, and there there is a logical consequence to the preaching of the gospel, especially when the Holy Spirit uses the preaching of the gospel to regener- regenerate dead sinners. They do good works. Good works are necessary, are the necessary result of the proclamation of the gospel for those who have been regenerated. As James says, just as the body that is not breathing is dead, so faith without works is dead that's not that's not faith that's you're still dead okay so here i even the passage that you quote from hebrews chapter 10 let me read it again therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places okay notice the reference here is to the gospel it's saying therefore in light of the gospel in light of the good news now that we we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Christ by the new and living way so you have the proclamation of the gospel and then you have the logical outspringing of it that results in us by our new nature drawing into the holy places with confidence by the blood of Christ, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is through his flesh, since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from evil consciences and our bodies washed with pure water. So let me continue. For this writer, the gospel results in something more than just a declaration of righteousness. It results, correct, in the advantages of declared righteousness, because in the imperative indicative view, we are either doing what we must or receiving what we are given. You miss that we are also changed in affections and inclinations. Now, as somebody who knows Dr. Rosenblatt and actually knows Dr. Horton, too, I I can testify <laughs> that as a regular listener and somebody who knows these men, they regularly talk about how, and even in these, these, uh, the, even in the episodes where they deal with uh, the fact that we're not the gospel, they make a point of saying that we have a new nature, and that this, and as the the result of the proclamation of the gospel and regeneration, is a change in our affections and inclinations. He says, anyway, so um, the, the that actually is the position that uh, Horton and uh, Riddlebarger and the gang take, by the way, and 
if you read their confessions too, I mean, the Heidelberg Confession makes it very clear as well. And both Riddlebarger and Horton, um, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if uh, Ken Jones subscribes to the London uh, Baptist Confession. I'm not sure if he, I think that's the one he subscribes to, but I know the Horton and Riddlebarger, uh, they subscribe to the Heidelberg Confession. And the Heidelberg Confession can't be clearer on this, by the way. Anyway, uh, let's see here. So because of the imperative indicative view, we are either doing what we must or receiving what we are uh, given. You must, uh, you miss that we are also changed in affections and inclination that leads to a gospel which sees fruit as optional. Yeah, no, no, actually, uh, uh, you know, um, the gospel produces good fruit in our life. It can't help but do so. The kind of church that your discussion constantly intimates and above explicitly accepts is a church where the gospel is made the centerpiece alone on the table. The gospel is made into something done, but somehow the idea that it is done for us gets neglected and it becomes something we see, but somehow not look to and rejoice in. Yeah, no, I I would disagree with that conclusion too, Frank. I'm I yeah, I don't th- I think that's kind of a non sequitur. I don't think that actually follows uh the their argumentation necessarily. And um yeah. Anyway, let me continue. It says I'm sure that stings a little, but often uh White Horse Inn degenerate uh, degenerate and denigrates people who would say in concrete ways that they enjoy the gospel, that they live for it and by it and through it. Now again, I gotta you know again. I don't know if that's really the beef. I think over and again, one of the drums that the White Horse Inn beats, if you would, is the idea that um, you know the, they're cleaning up the, the the really crazy language out there about be the gospel or live the gospel or you know or the book that's out there the hole in the gospel you know and 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 it confuses the things that we do with the things that we, with Christ has done it's that's a confusion of language and so you know they're pushing for theological and biblical accuracy that the bible is not something you or i do the sanctified life that is a necessary result of regeneration is not the gospel that's the fruit of the gospel and so i i frank i think you you don't quite you're not quite there. I don't think you quite. I don't know what it is, but it, it, you know, I, I'm, you know, again, I maybe I think if you spend a little bit of time in the Heidelberg Catechism, um, uh, the Heidelberg Confession, uh, it might clear some of this up because, um, again, Riddlebarger and Horton, they openly make clear that they subscribe to that confession. Anyway, let me continue. It says now, I realize that we can't we can't take everyone at their word. But do you really think that, for example, the young fellow who says we have to love people in order to save them from sin really means that there is no reference to Christ on a cross? Now, I can't answer this for uh, the White Horse Inn guys, but I can tell you that having talked with many guys who talk this way, uh, I think that they, many of them, not all, but many of them, uh, the, the cross is not in view when they say something like that. Now, it may be true he may have meant that, but I have dialogued with a lot of people who would say who would say that. But I have met far more who would say they have have to quote live the gospel. And after unpacking that with them, it turns out that they mean something a lot more like Hebrews eleven thirteen through sixteen, uh, which by the way, uh, let's pull it. That says that these all died in faith, not having received the promised things, but having been seen them and greeted them afar, and have acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles in the world for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland 
uh, you know, I guess I have to click on that to get a little farther here, um, that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land which they had gone, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Okay, so that's the quote there. Uh, now, um, so uh, uh, they mean to live as if the gospel is true. Okay, fair enough. I think there's people out there who just have bad, sloppy language. Um, and when they say they're, they're, they they want to live the gospel, um, they just they, they haven't been really well catechized and uh, don't realize that that's not the way to talk. But what they, if you're saying in your conversations what they mean is live as if the gospel's true, yeah, I understand that. But even if that's what they mean, they still need to clean up their language. They should say, I want to live as if the gospel is true rather than saying I'm going to live the gospel. You can't live the gospel. Christ lived the gospel for us. Now, Pastor Jones and Dr. Riddlebarger certainly make the clarification in the podcast I transcripted here, that is, that people ought to find a better way to say that if that's what they mean, maybe that's true. Maybe what they're saying is a lot sloppier uh, than First uh, John one seven, but maybe not. Maybe that's what in fact is going on. Is that sometimes us smart people want everyone to be as keen on systematics as we are, forgetting that systematics are a kind of legalism if they are taken too far. I think that Jesus didn't want to make us into people who knew everything about him and then buried it in our library because he's a hard man who reaps where he did not. So he wanted, that is, he wants us to be people who will sweep the whole house to find a lost penny and people who will buy the whole plot of land even though the treasure is only part of it. That is, we will live because the gospel is true. There is good news, not just apart from us, but for our sake. It changes the world from you must not or you must to I shall and let us. You know, Frank, I, I again, I think your, your position is actually the same as theirs. That's the funny thing as I'm reading this. Uh, again, read the Heidelberg uh, uh, Confession. I, um, man... We'll come back to that. Now, again, in the above podcast transcripts, I think you get all you get it almost right. You say there are consequences to the gospel, but they are not just likely or possible. They are necessary consequences of the gospel. That is, the gospel is not actually present if these things are not working out. They may not be perfected and completely worked out, but they are necessarily present. The high that highlight of being in Christ is in John's letter and evident in what Paul called the fruit of the spirit. Right there in Galatians, this is who you will be if the gospel is for you and the Spirit is for you. So to this end, I think you guys allow for a lot of uh, fruitlessness by default, and it comes across in the culture of the people who listen to you uh, a lot and are disaffected by their local church. They don't see it the way John saw it. They They see it as wanting basic Christianity and want the gospel, the perfect gospel, perfectly declared, with a willingness to bypass fellowship, including the sacraments, to get it, usually via podcasts and books. That brings me to my last point, which lands in my backyard, for which I usually take a lot of flack. This culture is the culture of the discernment blogosphere. Uh Uh-oh, that that would be me. And I think you guys need to own up to your contribution here in order to help clean it up. (laughs) Because you probably have never read anything by me before. Uh, Let me lay all of this complaint uh, out plainly so that you can grasp what I mean. What I'm not talking about is people who are doing the legitimate work of elders who are accountable to their local churches, who are usually elders who display openness and transparency about their character and ministry by not hiding behind an alias or an internet nickname. 
What I am talking about is the avalanche of people who populate the internet via discussion boards, blogs, and social media who frequently demonstrate all the love and real compassion of a rock through one's window. They are people who, on paper, make a sound confession of faith down to the mint and the cumin and wouldn't know what to do if their Hindu neighbor invited them to a birthday party on Sunday morning or how to turn the other cheek in order to make a foothold for the opportunity to share the gospel. They usually don't attend church because they can't find one which is up to their, uh, which is up to their doctrinal snuff, and the reason is, is that they have made themselves into a private magisterium. They have never said or written anything for which they would apologize or reconsider because they have never been wrong. You, you have seen to some of them, I am sure. The reason I'm suggesting that they are somehow an effect you ought to own a little is that they speak in the theological idioms of the white horse inn. They are very keen on law and gospel distinction to a fault. They are very keen on needing a new reformation, an obsession with the five solas, because they are bad emulations of your, of your good example. I suggest you should speak to them for a while to help them come around. See, in the last excerpt, when you say that it's it's only unhealthy to have none of the fruit of the Spirit, if you have a pure gospel, you give this sort of Christianity a free pass. You give this kind of faith the endorsement James only gives to the faith which saves, a faith which uh, matures under trial rather than hunkering down and bunkering up, and which turns a brother away from sin rather than branding him a heretic on the first pass. It is the open belief that one can be an unhealthy Christian when one is in fact flying in the face of 1 John 4, 12, uh, 11 through 12, but if, uh, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Not, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us, among other passages. It is evident that the listeners to the White Horse, and as long as I have a comprehensive understanding of Christ's transaction for sinners, which leaves the sinner with nothing but grace, I'm a decent disciple. I can humbly count myself saved, passive voice, indicative mood. And they learned it uh, from four very bright, winsome men who also, to some extent, believe it. I usually try to shut it. Uh, shut it down after three pages. This is a very long blog post, open letter. And I'm up to six now, so let me conclude by briefly, uh, briefly, after 20 years, I think we can safely say that we know what we ought to believe and why we ought to believe it. (laughs) No, I don't think so. Um, (laughs) And if you do, if you know what you believe and why you ought to believe it, your job is to teach it to the uh, next generation of people who don't know what they believe and ought to believe it. Anyway, just saying catechism never ends. But I think we have a problem now that is foundational. What does it mean to believe? Does it mean that we can recite the catechism, or is it related to a belief in the way that the instructions for a Lego kit are uh, related to the final toy, fully constructed? Does it mean we only know about something, an object, fact, in history, no less? That would be the devil's faith, by the way. Or that we are actually now in that story. Does it mean Christ's wounds are evident to us, or that we are now for the sake of the church and those called to to be in it, but not yet, uh, but not yet in to suffer personally to fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I ask because I think that you are my brothers in Christ, and I think these uh, uh, you are my brother in Christ. I think these problems are not small problems, and I also think uh, you're not one to see them as small. I believe you when you say. You are concerned for the health of the church, and I am with you. However, I think God's prescription for what ails us is the whole gospel, the whole great and good news, and the whole kit of necessary effects. 
Christ brings to us. Whether you respond or not, I close in admiration of you and your years of faithfulness, and I hope this letter finds you in God's good graces. So there you go. That was uh, Frank Turk's open letter to uh, Michael Horton. I'm going to take a break, and when we come back, I'm actually going to read uh, R. Scott Clark's response to Frank Turk, which I think is a is a is a fairly decent one because I think some of the things that uh, many of the things that Frank Turk brings up uh, as uh, well, best I could say it is is that I think uh, Horton and the gang actually agree with. Um, Frank far more than um, maybe Frank realizes. I, I'm not sure what the deal is there. But uh, yeah, anyway, we'll uh, we'll chime that. We'll take a look at that when we get back. Now, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. need to rethink Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Welcome to Build a God. How can I help you? Hi, I got this Build a God certificate from a fellow co-worker, and I came to check it out. Oh, that's nice of your friend. You must be excited. Well, uh, what exactly are we doing here? Oh, you silly man. We're building your very own deity. I don't feel comfortable doing this. Seems sort of like blasphemy. Oh, don't be silly. Everyone does this. Let me help you. First off, you decide whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Well, the Bible talks about the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it also says that Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day, so he has to be male. You? Okay. Next, we have to define the attributes of your god, like whether he's loving, kind, or compassionate. Well, in the Bible, God is just, he's merciful, he's righteous, and he's wrathful, all at the same time. Okay, then. Well, what is your God's take on sin? He fully condemns it. It's pretty obvious what God thinks of sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Humanity's only hope is in the blood Jesus shed on the cross. Are you saying your God doesn't accept gays? Don't think so. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with hellfire and brimstone because of it. I don't think he has a very high opinion of it. Could you excuse me for one moment? Sure. Hello? Can you get me the mall security? Thank you. Sir, I would be a religious terrorist here. 
Yes, he's a closed-minded Bible believer. Yes, I'll distract him while I wait for your men to arrive. Thank you. more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Morning. The gospel is not a license to sin. Yes, good works necessarily follow regeneration. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, your financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you as well as to the world. You can partner with us financially. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You know the drill. Find one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it out. If you don't already partner with us, please do it. It helps us to pay our bills so that we can keep doing what we're doing. All right, moving along here. You'll notice I'm taking the time to kind of flesh this out because I think this is an important topic. And uh, this is one of those things that rears its head from time to time. And um, I don't think Frank Turk has really raised the issue of antinomianism. I, although that's what R. Scott Clark, how he kind of up, how he interpreted, at least at the initial pass, as to uh, Frank Turk's uh, complaint. Because the question is, is that, listen, in light of the fact that, of, and the, of the law gospel distinctive, in, in which the scriptures teach, okay, read, read Romans, read Galatians, the law, the law gospel distinction is taught by scripture itself. This is not a Reformation distinctive. This is a biblical distinctive. It's Pauline. It's apostolic. Now, the question then is, is how do we make sense of the, you know, of the, uh, the passages of Scripture over and again, especially in the, in the epistles? Uh, you read first and second, you know, read first John. I mean, it's, it's chock full of them. You read, uh, you read James. You read even the Pauline epistles are chock full of this stuff that basically admonishes and exhorts Christians on to good works, loving God and loving neighbor, and uh, and even gives specific examples. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Slaves, obey your masters. I mean, all kinds of stuff along that. How do you make sense of it? Well, when you look at the theology of the Reformation, and this is both— this is in both the uh, Calvinist and uh, Lutheran camp. Uh, when you read the confessions uh, put out uh, during the time of the Reformation, 
over and again, it wrestles with these, and I think does a fine job of explaining it. In the Lutheran Confessions, we talk about the third use of the law, uh, and that because we've been set free from slavery to sin, we're now set free to love God and to love our neighbor, and that that new man, that 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 are regenerated beings, if you would, uh, do good works naturally as a result of it, and and uh, we are to admonish. Christians and uh, you know push them in you know push them and encourage them towards good works, but all of that is always done in light of the cross. Oh, even the passage that Frank Turk quoted from Hebrews, you know, it, it, admonishing us forward. It's all done after the gospel has been proclaimed, and and it's it's the and here's the good news: Christ died for us. Therefore. Because Christ has died for us, has set us free, has taken away all of our sins, has propitiated the wrath of God, therefore, in light of God's mercies, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. You see, I, you know, I have no problem with, uh, with preaching the law, none whatsoever. And, what, and i got to clarify this because you say, well, I've heard your sermon reviews, Chris, over and again. You go, la, la, la. Yeah, I do that. And when I do that, when I'm, many times I'm, I, the guy isn't even preaching biblical law just giving you a bunch of things that you're supposed to do as if that's somehow going to please God. And nary is the cross mentioned. Hardly ever is the is the shed blood of Christ mentioned. But biblical sanctification is always done in light of the gospel, always done as a fruit of the gospel and a fruit of the Spirit. And so the Christian is to have, uh, is to not just be admonished to good works and have the gospel be somewhere in the back. The gospel's the center, and from that center then comes and flows the admonishments into good works as the natural consequence of regeneration and rebirth and uh, being recreated in Christ and being buried with him in our baptism, raised with him, having our hearts circumcised. The natural result are the good works. And so when we, when I'm talking law, law, law on, in my sermon reviews, over and again, uh, many times we're not hearing even biblical law. We're just hearing, you need to get out of credit card debt because there's a biblical principle that says that if you are in credit card debt, that the, the lender is uh, the, uh, you know, the, the one who borrows is the slave to the lender. Well, you know, whoopee-doo. I mean, yeah, so? <laughs> yes, okay, yeah, that's, that, that has to do with wisdom and stuff like that. But how is that? Supposed to, you know, it, how you know, you understand what I'm saying? So o- over and again, we see the apostolic model as the fruit of repentance, the fruit of regeneration, the fruit of faith, which is the result of the preaching of the gospel. The gospel is the result of the is the proclamation of the good news, and then there's something that results from that. And uh, that, you know, it, it, what results is regeneration. What results is an increasing love for God's law and love for neighbor and love for, for God uh, and uh, wrestling with our sinful nature and continually coming to Christ on a daily basis, taking up our cross and following him and being forgiven and understanding that God's mercies are new every morning. So there are natural consequences to it. And maybe the thing that Frank is uh, pointing out is a weakness in the in the white horse in, in tackling some of uh, uh, those topics, uh, you know, m- maybe more marquee style, having them be the central point of discussion. But anyway, that being the case, I uh, somebody on Twitter pointed me to R. Scott Clark's Heidel blog, where he uh, he talks he talks you know kind of addresses Frank Turk's uh, issues, and uh, R. Scott Clark interpreted uh, uh, Turk's 
open letter really as the nub being antinomianism. So uh, I, I'm, I read from the Heidel blog. Um, the, uh, the name of the, uh, the blog entry is Jason Hood, Frank Turk, Dane Ortland, Mike Horton, and Antinomianism. Uh, R. Scott Clark writes, he says, There is something of a renewed controversy among the young, restless, and reformed movement over whether all the emphasis on free grace is promoting antinomianism. At Pyromaniacs, Frank Turk has published an open letter to Mike Horton, apparently on the basis of a single episode of... No, actually, no, he, he quoted several episodes. Uh, uh, on a single episode of uh, the White Horse Inn, accusing the White Horse Inn guys of fostering antinomianism. Yeah, I don't know if that's exactly what they, uh, what Frank was doing, though. But anyway, Frank uh, writes, he says, quote, The first is a general complaint. I think you fellows have taken the right-minded theological distinction, law and gospel, too far and have made all of uh, human life and God's interactions with man into either an imperative or an indicative, missing the point that some things in life, especially in the Christian life and in the Christian theological anthropology, fall under the subjunctive mood, Jason Hood writes, in, a cert- in certain quarters of the evangelical world, being accused of antinomianism is increasingly considered to be a symptom of a healthy ministry. Uh, this belief has a long pedigree, no less an authority than Martin Lloyd-Jones believed there was, quote, no better test of gospel fidelity than the accusation of antinomianism. Antinomianism, he writes, is heresy. Dan Ortland replies to Hood, and I don't know if Mike is going to reply to Turk. There is something, however, that Hood, Turk, and Ortland all seem to be missing, which is one of the reasons why I'm reading this point. There is a great deal of confusion in broad evangelicalism over the proper use of the law. That's correct, and I would I stand by what he's saying here. And this is you know this comes out in spades in the sermon reviews that we do here at Fighting for the Faith. The first and greatest error is to fail to distinguish law and gospel theologically or hermeneutically and to teach that one is justified because he is sanctified, which I think is one of the primary errors of American evangelicalism, by the way. We continue. He says, this is the Romanist error rejected rightly by the Reformation churches. The second error is also quite dangerous to say that the justified are not morally bound to God's moral law. No one is justified by observing the law. That, by the way, that's antinomianism that he's defined there. No one is is justified by observing the moral law. Scripture and the Reformed confessions are clear about this. They are also clear, however, that no one who is justified will ignore God's moral law. That's right. We are justified in order that we may, might be sanctified. It is God's will. It's Christ's will that we are sanctified. The Holy Spirit is the power of sanctification, and he operates first through the gospel to give life and to create faith by which we are united to Christ, but he, the Holy Spirit, also creates in the justified a desire to be more and more conformed to God's moral will as as revealed in the moral law. Believers, sola gratia, come to love God's law even as it continues— to drive them back to Christ. Yep. Now, confessional Protestant theology distinguishes between the law in its first use, its pedagogical teaching use, and in its third or normative use, which includes Turk's subjunctive mood. Mm -hmm. In the first use, the moral law is the word, in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism in 1563, teaches us the greatness of our sin and misery, the gospel does not teach us our sin. The gospel proclaims 
the free acceptance uh, with God through faith, trusting, alone in Jesus Christ alone, whose righteousness is imputed or credited to all who believe. In its third use, the law, see the resources below, norms the Christian life of those who've been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Protestants confess both uses of the law. Now, uh, we Lutherans, we uh, we talk about three uses. Okay, the first use, and you'll notice he's using a different a different use. The first use that we recognize is the use that is used by the government. Uh, the 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 government use is to basically to curb evil evil and to keep us from beating up on each other and stealing each other's stuff. That's the uh, use of the law used by the government. The government being an agency of God to keep the peace and to keep anarchy from reigning supreme here on this uh, planet. Okay, second use of the law is the one that kills us. It shows us our sin, and that's the primary use. I think that's how he's he's referring to first use. And then the third use of the law shows us what a good work is. What you do is you take the Ten Commandments that are negatives. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not bear false witness. And turn them into positives, Okay. And what does that look like positively? And that shows you, the third use of the law shows you what a good work is. And, uh, you know, really, you know, the kind of fruits that you should, you know, that, you know, are looking, what you're looking for in uh, the Christian. Now, the problem is, is that third use of the law uh, shows us a good work and at the same time condemns us because we're not doing it um, perfectly. So, on the one hand, uh, the, the law condemns Christians, and on the other hand, uh, as the sanctifying work of the Spirit works in the Christians, the, sanct- the, the Christian has a love for God's law more and more. As the psalmist says, you know, I, I love your law and I meditate, on, I meditate upon it day and night. Anyway, we continue. Protestants confess both uses of the law. Reformed folk have always taught that we are justified in order that God may be glorified. Kind of a uh, that's a, a Calvinistic way of putting it, but yes, and that we might be sanctified, and thus, in the words of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, that we might enjoy God forever, and that we might live in communion with Him. No Christ has earned that communion for us, but those who are justified are empowered by the Spirit to be sanctified by grace alone. He gradually transforms their intellects, their wills, and their affections to think God's revealed word to choose God's revealed moral law, and to love God and the things that God loves. This process of sanctification takes a lifetime and will in this lifetime be an unfinished project. Yep. It is not surprising that there is a backlash from some non-confessional evangelical quarters regarding the use of the law. It's been this way at least uh, since the start of the so-called lordship controversy in the late 1980s. One of the features of that controversy was its disconnection from the uh, from the Reformation. Both sides appealed to the Protestant reformers, but both sides ignored the Protestant confessions, where all of this is already worked out exquisitely and briefly. In the Heidelberg Catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism solved the lordship controversy before it ever began. From the Heidelberg Catechism, I read, Number two, how many things are necessary for you to know that in this comfort that you may live and die happily? Uh, Three things. The first is how great my sin and misery is. The second, how I am redeemed from all of my sins and misery. And the third, how I am to be thankful to God for such redemption. From where do you know your misery? Answer, from the law of God. Number four, what does the law of God require of us? 
Christ teaches us in the, in some in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind and all of your strength. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like unto it that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Question number five, can you keep this perfectly? No, for I am prone by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Are all men then saved? Question number 20. Are all men then saved by Christ as they perished in Adam? No, only those who by true faith are engrafted into him, Christ, and receive all of his benefits. Question 22. What is true faith? True faith is not only a certain knowledge whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also a hearty trust which the Holy Spirit works in me by the gospel, not that not only to others but to me also forgives uh, uh, forgiveness of sins. Everlasting righteousness and salvation are freely given by God merely of grace only for the sake of Christ's merit. Question number 86, what then are are we redeemed from, our misery by grace through Christ without any merits of ours? Why should we do good works? Answer, because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, also renews us by his Holy Spirit after his own image, that with our whole life we should ourselves thankful to God for his blessing, and also that he be glorified through us, then also that we ourselves may be assured of our faith by the fruits uh, thereof and by our godly walk, win others also to Christ. What are good works? Those only which proceed from faith and are done according to the law of God unto his glory, and not such as rest on our own opinions or the commandments of men. Can those who are converted to God keep these commandments perfectly? No. But even the holiest men, while in this life, have only a small beginning of this obedience, yet so, with earnest purpose, they begin to live, not only according to some, but according to all of the commandments of God. Question number 115. Why then does God so strictly enjoin the Ten Commandments upon us, since in this life no one can keep them? Answer, first, that as long as we live, we may learn more and more to know our sinful nature, and so the more earnestly seek forgiveness of sins and righteousness in Christ. Secondly, that without ceasing, we diligently ask God for the grace of the Holy Spirit, that we be renewed more and more after the image of God until we attain the goal of perfection after this life. This is all perfectly clear. This is R. Scott Clark, uh, R. Scott Clark writing. Now he says, this is all perfectly clear and perfectly biblical. Why do the evangelicals keep swinging back and forth on the pendulum? Because they are not rooted in the Reformation. They make occasional forays into the Reformation during periods of controversy, for example, the lordship controversy, but their theology, piety, and practice is not shaped by the churchly Protestant consensus reflected in the Reformed or Lutheran confessions, because their piety centers in on their experience and or fundamentalism. Thus, whatever temporary adherence to the Reformation might develop in one generation withers in the noonday sun on in the next, and one after that has to find it like Josiah discovered the Torah— one final strongly worded comment warning if you are sensitive if you're feeling if if your feelings are easily hurt if it pains you to see one christian speaking forcefully bluntly to others then stop reading i'm not sure how you've 
how you've read much of the uh, New Testament. Nevertheless, if you're still reading, you've been warned. Okay, so our Scott Clark is now going to speak bluntly. The insinuation, even if made with deference and politeness on the basis of a single 30-minute episode, actually quoted two, but um, that the White Horse Inn guys are antinomians is just silly. The author says that he's been listening to the White Horse Inn for 20 years. If so, he must surely recall the many times when the White Horse panel has discussed the moral necessity of sanctification, and they have. Uh, For those who are justified, the White Horse Inn guys are quite able to defend themselves, but that one would feel the need to write an open letter demonstrates a singular lack of comprehension of Reformation basics and of the actual teaching of the White Horse Inn. (laughs) Oh, man. Our our Scott Clark makes a great point that if you read the confessions, the Heidelberg uh, Confession, uh, and you read the Lutheran Confessions, this stuff is, is, is not tucked away in some obscure set section of, of uh, the Lutheran confessions at all. I mean, we our confessions hammer this stuff out clearly, as does the Heidelberg Confession. This is all clearly, clearly, clearly taken care of in these confessions, and, uh, and uh, those who are catechized under them know these categories well, and which, which is the reason why I kind of made my point earlier. I don't I don't think that Frank quite gets uh, what these guys are saying, and I don't. I, I I'm just not sure, you know, because there's. I think there's a lot of, uh, um, there's a lot of common ground here, and I'm not even sure if this is even a real controversy, especially in light of the fact if you know the Confessions of the Lutheran Church and the Heidelberg uh, uh, Confession, then the, <clears throat> yeah, I I don't see that. I don't. I just don't see it as an issue. But I brought it up because it's you know it's it's kind of a brouhaha. Uh, right now in the uh, in the blogosphere, worth passing along and covering in depth. So, all right, moving along, it's uh, time to, uh, to just ask one question, and and that is, can you make heads or tails of um, this um, answer to a question asked of Bill Johnson? Uh, Bill Johnson, by the way, uh, hang on, a let me cue up the music here. That's right. the 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 truth is out there, um, somewhere. Now for another installment of the Bill Johnson Files. Bill Johnson of Bethel TV. You know, it seems like every time I play a Bill Johnson segment, I you know it. I, yeah, I don't understand where on earth he's coming from because, quite frankly, none of it makes one bit of sense to me. So this particular video, by the way. A gal who attends, uh, I sorry, it's iBethel.tv. Let me kill. Let me kill that music. Um, iBethel.tv. Bill Johnson. Yeah, again, not sure what planet he's from. Um, he's asked a question from a gal in the audience. I'll read the question to you because it's a little hard to, for you to hear. But s- biblically, see if any of you guys can make heads or tails of this um, particular. Do you balance the beauty of living in hiddenness with? Walking in your giftings because it blesses other people and because it's fun. Okay. In case you didn't hear the question, I know it's a little light on, you know, the audio is a little soft. Uh, the gal at the at uh, this Bethel church there where Bill Johnson is the teaching pastor. Um, the question is, how do you balance the beauty of living in hiddenness with walking in your giftings because it blesses other 
people and because it's fun. Um, <laughs> uh, what? <laughs> what is she talking about? How do you balance the beauty of living in hiddenness? Uh, is hiddenness a state? What does it mean to live in hiddenness? And walking in your giftings because it blesses other people and because it's fun. I mean, you can live in Poughkeepsie. Um, you can walk in the park. Um, and playing disc golf is fun, but I didn't know that you can actually live in hiddenness. I don't know what that means. Uh, anyway, anyway, so that's the question. And uh, let's see what Bill Johnson says here. Um, the best thing to do is, is don't worry about notoriety. Right. And don't worry about hiddenness. Right. Yeah. Okay. I've never ever. I've never once worried about hiddenness. Um. Where is this taught in the Bible? Um. Have any of you ever had a sleepless night worrying about hiddenness? I mean, you know. You know, you, you, you're sitting there and you're going, okay, you know, money's tight this month and I'm worried about my bills. And and then and then you go, oh, but oh, that hiddenness thing. Oh, I'm, I'm worried about living in hiddenness. Uh, I, I've never once even for a second or a nanosecond have had any anxieties or worries about living in hiddenness. Have you? Just choose not to promote yourself. Right, yeah, okay. Just choose. Choose to promote people around you. Right. Choose not to seek for visibility or notoriety. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. It's it's so overrated. Right. It's it's better, maybe a better way for me to say it would would be value hiddenness. Uh Uh-huh. How do you value it? What's it worth? Be quick to serve anywhere you can serve. Uh Uh-huh, yeah. But value hiddenness. Right, and when, for example, an article is written, an article is written, I'm going to talk about me now. Okay, An yeah. article is written. So he's practicing hiddenness by talking about himself. Okay, all right. About an event I was at. I read the article. If I see that my name was mentioned and something wonderful happened in that meeting and my name was attached to it, I stop and I give thanks. I say, Lord, thank you. For letting my name be associated with something you did. But you've got to hear me. If I finish the article, and even though I was a main figure in that event, and my name is not mentioned, then I give extreme thanks for the privilege of staying hidden a day longer. (laughs) What? Do do you get the feeling that um, Bill Johnson rolls and smokes his own theology? Yeah, I I think he is actually. um, This is probably the equivalent of theological cannabis. This this is this is theological weed that we're dealing with here. Now I value hiddenness, and I value that it's a good question. But what you don't want to do is false humility will keep you from your destiny. Really, false humility will keep me from my destiny. Okay, got it. You know, I see a lot of people out there who are living their destiny who don't they don't have false humility. They just got outright arrogance. I mean, how is it those people those people are pulling off their quote destiny as, as being as arrogant as they are? I just I want how does that work? Cuz they're not practicing hiddenness. They're they're practicing in your faceness. Can you practice in your face? Can you live in in your faceness? You know, I just destiny. True humility will take you to it. 
And if you if you will not idolize hiddenness, value it without idolizing it. Right. Don't, whatever you do, don't make an idol out of hiddenness. Which kind of lends to the, you know, this question: If is hiddenness hidden? If it's hidden, then how can I idolize it? I mean, hiddenness would have to come out from its hiddenness in order for me to see it so that it wouldn't be hidden anymore. And then if I saw it, I thought, oh, I thought, wow, that's some really nice-looking hiddenness. Uh, and then I would then turn around and idolize it because, yeah. When you are exposed, you'll be able to handle the weight of it. Oof. The problem isn't being exposed. Yeah, okay. The problem is that when many are exposed to public scrutiny, right, yeah. they can't stand the weight of the pressure of the fame the power, the, all, all the stuff that goes with it. So you embrace the hiddenness as yeah. he unveils you. Right, okay. Give him thanks for letting your name be associated with his. And when nobody mentions you after you've been unveiled, you better grab your moment and celebrate. So, um, so you celebrate when... You have your moment when Christ unveils you and no one notices that. That's a good thing. Um, where is any of this taught in the Bible? Holy cow. Because it's another taste of hiddenness. Yeah. And, uh, what does hiddenness taste like? Is it like chocolate? Is it like fish? Maybe it tastes like, uh, you know, liver and onions. Yeah. It's it's you've, it's it's not a balance between the two. It's right. just a life of responsibility. Right? Yeah. Whatever you just said, and she went, "Thank you." <laughs> Whoo, boy! I'm glad they put that question and answer there on uh, YouTube because man, my my life won't be the same now after hearing what what did any of that mean? <laughs> okay. Okay, uh, moving along, we're going to take our uh, second break, and uh, when we come back, we got a good sermon for you to hear uh, from uh, Advent Evangelical Lutheran Church uh, in the northeastern part of Indianapolis in uh, Zionsville there. Pastor John Feeney, uh, he uh, preached a sermon talking about the purpose of church, which kind of fits with what we were talking about earlier today uh, with uh, the uh, controversy over... Yeah, Frank Turk, you know, in his open letter raised. But anyway, uh, if you would like to email me regarding anything you've heard on uh, this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, frenzy, cunning, photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ 
and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. We're well into it here. Good sermon today. I want you to hear it because it deals with the issue of why do we go to church? Cue up the sermon review music and just dive right into it. Here we go. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via Advent Evangelical Lutheran Church in Zionsville, Indiana. Pastor John Feeney presiding. I guess the name of the sermon, it doesn't really have a name because he preaches from the lectionary. And uh, the gospel reading for that Sunday, I think, was taken from Luke chapter 5. But the... um, For lack of a better way of putting it, the name of the sermon has to do with what is the purpose of church? Why do we go to church? Why? What's what's this church thing all about? Yeah, we go. That's what I'll call it. Yeah, because he didn't name his sermon. What's this church thing all about? By Pastor John Feeney. I'm sure he will appreciate me calling it that. All right, let's uh, kill the music. So without any further ado, this is not a very long sermon, uh, but I want you to hear this. Listen carefully. Here is... Uh, John Feeney on, uh, you know, what's this church thing all about? <laughs> oh, man, that's not the right name. Here we go. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text today is taken from the gospel lesson, but I'll read these words. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. 
When people come to a church, they sometimes come with different needs or expectations. Is a church going to be a place for me to be able to find a, a group of people, friends perhaps? Is the church going to be a place that is going to help me to be able to iron out some of my problems in my life? Is the church going to be a place where I'm going to kind of feel like I'm in continuity with what my parents, my grandparents have done and been, and like being a citizen of a country. I'm a member of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and always will be, and it feels good to be in a church with the same liturgy and the same hymns. What is the purpose for us coming to church? That purpose is reflected in four words. For the forgiveness of sins. It is the purpose and it is also the means. The means to be able to do what Jesus has called these disciples to do. They are supposed to come and catch men. They're to be fishers of men. I guess that means that they are called for the purpose of converting the world. Nobody ever looks at this text, I think, from the standpoint of the fish, do we? It starts off, the fish are swimming around, free as can be in that dark water. And all of a sudden, a net comes along and they swim into the net. Suddenly, they're huddled together with a whole bunch of other fish and they're dragged out into the boat, taken out of the water, eyes bulging out, fins, gills, flopping, kicking, jumping, trying to get out of the boat. That, dear friends, is the description of what it looks like when a person is converted. It is the description, if you will, of what we call evangelism the true purpose and goal of our church. In our sermon today, I'm going to talk about three things. I'm going to talk about the net. Then we're going to talk about this cure. And then we're going to talk about the calling that we all have as Christians to pick up and to follow after Christ. The net. This last week, when I was up at the seminary in Fort Wayne listening to some good speakers, there was a particularly wonderful presentation by Professor Roland Ziegler. Many of you have known good old German Professor Ziegler, and he has come down here before and spoken to you. In his paper, he took up the difference of perspective between the, the idea of conversion in the eyes of Walther, C.F.W. Walther, who was the first president of our Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and that of the Wesley brothers, Charles and John Wesley, who were really the founders of Methodism, which is not the Methodism of today, but a different kind of Methodism in the days gone by. For the Wesley brothers, conversion was something like this, that you started off having this miserable life, and then you became a Christian, and then life got to be really wonderful, at least as long as you were obeying all the principles of what religion should be. For Walther, life was wonderful before you were converted, and then when you got converted, then suddenly 
the sinful nature and the regenerated spiritual nature came to be at war with each other, and the Christian lay in the world in such a way that it actually became very difficult. Okay, notice what's going on here. Is this not, I mean, the, the, what he's describing here, he's calling, you know, the Wesley brothers approach that, oh, you're a miserable person, but then you apply these principles to your life and things get better. This is evangelism. This is the fundamental concept that's ticking under the hood of the seeker-driven churches. Yet what Pastor Feeney is contrasting that with is this idea that you're you're a pretty happy sinner, you know, before you become a Christian. You're out there just minding your own business. You're you're living your life. You you know, things are going well for you. And then the gospel, which is the net, catches you and drags you into the kingdom of God. And then life gets miserable for you. And the first thing he picks up on is is that because we have a new nature in Christ, now, all of a sudden, the Christian life is marked with, first and foremost, kind of a war within, a war with the, uh, the new nature versus the old Adam. And you're miserable in that war. Oy. Yeah, yeah, uh-huh. This is exactly what Jesus was trying to teach us in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, woe to you who are rich. That's your consolation. Woe to you who are full now. We have everything we need in our lives. You're going to be hungry. Woe to you who laugh. Because you're going to weep and you're going to mourn. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. But he said in contrast to this, blessed are the poor. And he didn't just mean the financially poor. He meant those who felt no worth of their own. He said, you're going to be hungry. You're going to be weeping. Men will hate you. They'll exclude you. They'll revile you. They'll cast out your name as being evil, all on account of the Son of Man. So does the Christian life get better when a person becomes a Christian? What kind of a God would do that to his children, to treat them in the way in which a fisherman would be treating the fish that he pulls them up out of the sea and gathers them into his nets. It is interesting that some of the great Christian writers, in fact, almost every one of them, like C.S. Lewis, when they describe their conversion, it is not this kind of this, oh, I made this wonderful choice for God and I decided that I would become a Christian and and I did so, and, and God has so blessed me as the result of it. C.S. Lewis says that he was dragged kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God. What and how does God do this? How does he take that net and catch men? It starts off in the very way that, that God creates us. He creates us and he leaves this imprint upon us of his own nature so that we have a rough idea of who this God is and what he expects of us. But it's vague. We have a sense of our responsibilities that we must do and we have a sense that there's going to be some kind of accountability to God. But it's a little bit like kids on summer vacation they kind of remember that there's this thing called school that they go to 
but they don't necessarily feel very pressed by it because it always seems a long way off. But then God draws us in, so to speak. He does take us to school. He begins to use reason with us. And if we really think about it and the way in which we speak to the world, it is very easy to be able to lay a case that the righteousness of God is a very wonderful way to live. If you just look at the commandments, you will come to discover that our society will be a far greater and better place if men would not only not harm each other, but would actually act with love towards each other. Christianity is a religion that teaches very high moral standards. And as they build up families and culture, things prosper and do well. And we are drawn in closer and closer to see that there is a reward in that kind of righteousness. Society then looks at us and they say, you know, if this person won't steal, if this is a person who speaks well of others, if this is a person who sacrifices for the common good, they should be promoted, they should be recognized, they should be honored, they should be esteemed. So we start to accumulate all those riches in life and it fills us with pride and a sense of accomplishment. And we approach our God and we say, look, God, I've got all these good things going for me now. What should I do, God? And then he snares us. Whether it be a net or whether that's the worm that's on the hook, he draws us in and then he lets our conscience know that our righteousness and our deeds, these are not something that pleases him. He draws us in and he makes us realize that like a little child who is going down to the car dealership with a penny in their hand, thinking that they can buy a car, that we can with all of our deeds and our works and our accomplishments and the pride and the esteem of others, we cannot even come close to being able to purchase that gift of forgiveness and pardon and eternal life. He suddenly makes us realize the closer that we come to him and the more we understand his law, that it is not just the outward deeds that we do that he judges, but even the very intentions of our heart, so that even so much as even the condescension that we feel towards others makes us guilty and liable to the fires of hell. But our conscience is now caught We cannot escape this God that we know is indeed the true God and we cannot find a way to be able to make ourselves righteous in his sight. And like fish who have just been pulled out of the sea, we come to realize that the world that we had in this world, in the world that is outside of this world in heaven, make us so incompatible that in the same way that fish cannot survive outside of that water so also we cannot survive in the presence of God. And our conscience grabs on and God doesn't let us go. And there is no greater torment than the sinners who is caught in the terrors of such a fear of God's judgment. So much for the net. Now the cure. Then and only then 
Does the forgiveness of our sins come to mean something? In Luke chapter 5, beginning at verse 17, Jesus is teaching, and he has around himself a group of Pharisees. In fact, they're so densely populated inside of the house that nobody can even get in. Pharisees, those who were so proud of their wonderful works and deeds. There was a paralyzed man. His friends were bringing him to Jesus, wanting him to heal him. They couldn't get into the house, so they climbed up on top of the house. They pulled off the tiles that were on the house, and they lowered this man down with ropes so that he could be let down before Jesus. Jesus looks at the man, and he sees the faith that the man has. And by faith, meaning he came for something more than even physical healing. And he says to the man, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees are indignant. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus said, which is greater to say, thy sins be forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk? That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say unto you, rise, take up your bed, and go home. And the man rose and got up and went home. Which one of us would be willing to say that it would be more important that our sins are forgiven than to, if we were paralyzed, want to walk? I think this priority in our life, this desire to be able to find the forgiveness of our sins is what it's all really all about, isn't it? God captures our conscience and he tantalizes us with his law and he lures us in to that terrorizing realization that we are forsaken and we are lost But then he comes those beautiful words. Your sins are forgiven. Isn't that what it is that Jesus came to do? He didn't come to be another lawgiver to give us the ten rules on how to be able to make our life better, to be able to somehow prosper in our jobs and become rich. He didn't come to affirm us in our choices of life. He came to the cross for the purpose of bearing in his body the wrath of God that was intended for all sinful humanity. And there at the cross, he took our guilt and he took our shame and he paid for it with his own blood. Now he turns around and he liberates us and sets us free and he brings us into his kingdom and he does something for us purely out of his grace. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord's favor. Part 3. Our calling. Call of Jesus to Peter and the other disciples was to do exactly the same thing that Jesus did. 
to ensnare men's consciences and then set them free by means of the forgiveness of sins. But it was a call that extended not just to them, but also to us. It is extended for us to help people understand the pardon and the forgiveness of their sins. And we cannot be motivated by guilt to do this. I just, you hear this so often. Missions, uh, talk to people, share the good news. We're in the mission field. Let me tell you, the only person who can ever be a witness to Christ is a person who tastes the sweetness of his forgiveness. And it comes naturally from the heart and from the mouth of a person who understands the wonders of what God has done for us in Christ. Got to pause there. Yes, absolutely true. Now, back a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, I actually uh, was a sales and marketing manager. I was uh, an executive in a corporation, and I was in charge of managing sales and marketing folk. And um, one of the things that I learned as managing sales people in particular is that there are two types of uh, salespeople. There are salespeople, and then there are evangelists. And um, give me two evangelists. I'll take two evangelists over 10 salespeople any day. And let me explain what I mean by an evangelist. An evangelist in, say, in the corporate world is somebody who lives, eats, breathes, sleeps the product that they're promoting. They think, uh, I mean, they believe all the way down to the tips of their toes. And they're tingling all the time, too. They believe down to the tips of their tingling toes that that the thing that they're selling is going to change the world. They would sell that product even if there was no commission in it for them because they believe in it so much. Let me give an example you know, so that you can kind of latch onto this, the, the difference between a salesperson versus an evangelist. Coming back to the evangelist, though. The evangelist, do you all, I mean, I'm a Macintosh user. I cannot tell you how many times I have been excited to show people what a Macintosh can do. I bought my first Macintosh computer after working two summer jobs back in 1986. I bought a Macintosh 512KE, and I could not have been happier. From the moment I purchased my first Macintosh until now, I have been a loyal Apple Macintosh user. And, it, 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 you know, I sell people on Macintosh, and I've never once ever received a commission or a penny from Apple for the sales work that I have done in convincing people to switch from Windows computers to a Mac. Never once have I made a commission. And if I had made a commission, I'd actually have made a fair amount of money. But the reason why is because down to the tips of my tingling toes, I believe that the Apple Macintosh is the best computer ever made, and it only continues to get better and better and better and better and better. And that at best, Windows is a cheap imitation and knockoff. I mean, that, that's what I believe down to the tips of my toes. Okay, so if you've ever had somebody who doesn't work for Apple try to sell you on how great Apple, the Apple Macintosh is, that person is an evangelist. They don't share that because they have to. 
They're not doing it out of compulsion. They're doing it because they believe it. Okay. Same with a Christian. Okay. Now let me tell you about the salespeople. A salesperson is the person who says, oh my goodness, uh, I've got rent due next week. And if I don't close three sales, then my commission check isn't going to be enough for me to be able to do X, Y, or Z. And I had better get my act together. And so what happens is salespeople, they learn tie-down techniques. Now, those of you who've worked in sales, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Salespeople are taught certain techniques in which, by which they tie down uh, the would-be customer uh, so that they make decisions accordingly. And those decisions, the the right decision is for them to purchase a car. And so they have techniques, they have ways, and methods, and and kind of manipulation techniques to make the person make that decision. Not because what it is that's being sold to them is the thing they really need, but because the person doing the sales job needs to pay their bills. Because if they don't, you know, if they don't get, they don't close three more sales, their commission check's not going to be enough. And I don't partic- I I really did not enjoy managing sales people. There was kind of a sliminess to all of that, and so I was uh, the the type of sales manager that I was. I was trying to create evangelists, and I, I I did not get along well with the sales people that I managed. And I think Christianity is kind of the same way. When we have when we tell people, "Oh, you have to do you have to share the gospel. You've got to get out there. You've got to tell people about the love of Jesus. You've got to you got to you or else, you know, and it's all eh. Yeah, the problem with that is is that that's using the law and and it doesn't make any sense. You have to share good news. I really, I have to. I have to share good news. I have to share good news. If it's such good news, then why would I have to share it? If it's such good news, wouldn't I want to share it? And that comes to the point that Pastor Feeney is making here. Jesus says, he who is forgiven much loves much. When you proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name, and people understand what a great Savior they have because of the forgiveness of their sins, because the shortcomings of, that they and their own life live regarding the law and how it condemns them, and they realize what a gracious and loving and kind Savior they have, and it's mercy and forgiveness in abundance. At that point, that's not somebody who needs to be prodded to share the good news. That's somebody who becomes an evangelist who can't help but share good news because they can't wait to tell everybody about their Savior who forgave their sins, and they want that for their friends and for their family and for the strangers, the lady who cuts their hair, the woman at the supermarket, the guy at the post office. You see what I'm saying? I think that's the distinction he's making here. And it's a good one. It doesn't get to be an easy task. In fact, it gets harder. Because the more that we try to be able to express this, the more that we are also ourselves going to realize how unworthy we are. Like Peter, we fall on our knees. We say, Lord, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. We come to recognize that we're more sinful 
Paul says that he is the chief of sinners. Why? Because he understood the depths of God's grace. And he saw himself as a person who was growing poorer and poorer as he became, through the gift of Christ, richer and richer. He found himself becoming more and more hungry for that forgiveness of his sins as he sat down to the table of his Lord and received a fulfilling meal. Christians have to understand that we will be hated and reviled and excluded and even called evil because we place no confidence in our own human flesh. God's way is grace and mercy and pardon and forgiveness given to all men through the waters of baptism and in the body and the blood of our Lord and Savior. As we come and find ourselves having to love our enemies and to pray for them and to bless them and to share our cloaks with them and to walk the extra mile and to turn the cheek and to show mercy, what do you suppose happens? The more that we do this, the more we come to understand the incredible gift that God has done for us. What is going to make it possible to be able to find the strength to do that? Four words. Your sins are forgiven. There's no greater power on earth than those four words. It is the only thing in the sea of this world that sets the fish free to live outside of these earthly waters. And that, my dear friends, is the singular task that God has called us as a church to do. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Amen. Amen. Short, sweet, to the point. For the forgiveness of our sins. Right on. Right on. Can't add to it. All right. That's our program for today. Yeah, you're thinking, well, that's kind of short. Yeah, I know. Just get over it. Sometimes we go long. Sometimes we go short. That's that's the way it works here. (laughs) Need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, your financial contributions in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. You can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons there, fill it out, and and go for it. You, You understand what I'm saying. All right, we'd love to get your feedback. If you want to contact me and let me know what you thought about anything you've heard on today's edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We're going to ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ in his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.